Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 18. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, A Bug's Life. I'm Kay here with my co-host, Taz. Hello. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of A Bug's Life. Instead of fleeing and approaching Marauder, the crew pretends that Moya is still a peacekeeper vessel to pump the commandos for information. With John and Aaron pretending to be peacekeepers and the rest pretending to be prisoners, all hell breaks loose when Shiana and Rigel release a sentient virus that can infect anyone and turns out to be more dangerous than the commandos. So this episode has one of my favorite tropes colliding with one of my least favorite tropes. First, we have John and Aaron pretending to be peacekeepers to fill the commandos, which is so much fun to watch, I can't tell you. And then we have this intelligent virus that is brought aboard by the commandos. It's the cargo they're carrying, which causes possession. It takes over the body of the person it infects and is in total control of them. So evil possession is one of these classic tropes that, at least for me, really gets at this primal fear of of losing control, you know, over your body. And this episode does a really good job of amping up the tension with this shell game question of of where is the virus as all these things start to go to hell. Yeah, I agree that I think that one of my favorite tropes is people pretending to be things that they're not. And so I really love, I really love the kind of pretend game of Aaron and and John pretending to be peacekeepers. And John is not just pretending to be any peacekeeper. John is pretending to be like the most uptight of all uptight peacekeepers. And Aaron gets to be a peacekeeper again. And I think one of the recurring things we've talked about on the podcast is how much Aaron aches to go back to her old life as a peacekeeper yeah and it's not just wanting it's literally this like ache this pain in her at the at the realization that she is not a peacekeeper anymore so here she's introduced to not just any peacekeepers but these are like the best of the best peacekeepers they're like a ghost unit it's all very cool (laughs) and they and they think she is also very cool so it's it's kind of a an interesting episode for Aaron. she really hits it off with the peacekeeper captain laroque who is is okay let's just say it he's completely dreamy and (laughs) he is (laughs) he's got like you know he's just that very classically ruggedly handsome rough guy in control in command he's got a dangerous assignment that he picked because it was a challenge and he immediately hits it off with Aaron and they actually have a whole number of little flirty moments as she's taking them to get food and you know set them up while they have their journey to their final destination and you can see you can see how she was amongst the peacekeepers the kind of camaraderie she's finding with them like she's giving them shit for being commandos she's poking fun at them and they're poking fun right back at her it's very much the camaraderie you would expect from a military unit or two military units making fun of each other yeah and I was trying to think of a good metaphor for Larocque because he is one of those characters, much like Jelena, that have a very long shadow for the rest of the series. Because, you know, even though he's only in one episode and Jelena's only in a couple episodes, they still cast a very long shadow where in the last season you can still kind of see the effects of them later on. And I realized that Larocque is essentially Aaron's Jelena. It's somebody yeah. that she has immediate chemistry with, it's somebody that she just clicks with, and it's somebody that if John hadn't interrupted Aaron's life, you could have conceivably seen them getting together. Yeah. Well, later on, I mean, that's where their flirtation and and their working together kind of goes. He kind of asks her out on a date. 
in addition to asking her to join his team, I mean, he gives her a full-blown job offer, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, it's very cute. Let's actually play that quote where he offers her something that I think if, he'd, if it had been offered to her nine episodes ago, would have just gutted her. You know, this may sound funny, but you ever think about going special ops? Me. I've seen you in action. What are you doing in Newstart Regiment, huh? You're being wasted there. You're wasting yourself there. <laughs> Plus I... I like the idea of having you nearby. Bad timing. Let's just get this assignment closed out, huh? No, it isn't that. Look, I know you've got your captain to consider, and High Command's gonna have plenty to say on the subject. But if you don't get some time at the Gamic base, maybe you could sit down, talk about it. So for Aaron, I think in this scene, for her, she's getting this recognition from this commando that she's admired and been working with and seen him in action and, and he he thinks that she is good in a fight and we know from one of the earlier episodes what was it uh exodus from genesis i think mm -hmm. where she actually applied to become a commando but it was still in process when the whole thing with uh, moya's escape happened and she had to she had to leave and so this is one of her dreams that was cut off and he is a legitimate commando thinks she's good enough for the job, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's a pretty cool thing for her. Yeah, it, it is somebody essentially offering up her dream job. And it's somebody that she does kind of have like this kind of fun banter with. You know, she calls them like she's like, oh, yeah, I saw one of your type one time, you know, unkempt <laughs> uniform not obeying the rules you know essentially she's describing like he's like the james dean of commandos you know what i mean <laughs> like he's yeah. the rebel without yeah. a cause of commandos he's great yeah so the reason that larock is on board in the first place is that we aren't really given the circumstances we're just given the setup which is that john has pitched this plan where they've been contacted by a marauder that wants to dock with them because it's leaking fuel. And John's convinced everybody that the best thing for them to do is to pretend to be prisoners again. And he and Aaron, because he passes for salvation, are going to pretend to be peacekeepers. The reasoning behind this, I don't know, I I still didn't a hundred percent understand it, I'll be honest. From from what I understood is that there's this marauder that's out in the middle of the uncharted territories and they want to know why. And they think that they can get more mm -hmm. information about peacekeeper movements out in the uncharted territories because even though they're outside of the major peacekeeper jurisdiction, you know, they've run into them several times. You know, wanted beacons, as we saw, until the blood runs clear. And then you also have that planet that uh, was making chalk and oil from, the, thank God, it's Friday again. So there's a peacekeeper presence out in the uncharted territories, but it's unpredictable. It's not really well known. They don't have anyone they can ask. And so I think the idea here is that they're going to see if they can get any information about peacekeeper movements from this marauder crew and also not draw suspicion to themselves. Because what if this crew goes on and runs into somebody like Crace and tells them, oh, we saw a Leviathan out there who didn't help us out kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So they've, they've got this ruse going on where John's the captain, Aaron's the lieutenant. They claim to be on a, a test flight for how to use Leviathans without a control collar. 
by controlling the pilot, like neurally controlling the pilot. They claim it's a success, even though all other of the experiments have failed. So it's, it's a lot of fun to watch them play dress up, essentially. Though I have to say, I'm, Sean's yeah. accent is a little weird. And also, how does that work with the translator microbes? Yeah, this is one of those things where you probably wouldn't want to question it too much. <laughs> probably not. But yeah, that's the only like niggling thing that always bothers me about this episode is wouldn't they know the difference between his actual voice because he's speaking the wrong language? But hand yeah. wave, hand wave, hand wave. <laughs> when he's like playing Peacekeeper John, he talks in like this weird because all the peacekeepers, let's put this out there. <laughs> all the peacekeepers <laughs> and a lot of the alien species speak with an Australian accent because the TV <laughs> show was filmed in Australia. Right. Right. John is talking in this weird, like, British, Australian, South African accent. And I actually want to play a short clip because Lorac initially comes on the ship and then he and his whole crew are, like, aiming guns at everybody. And he's like, I'm, you know, commandeering this ship. And John (laughs) has the DRDs release holy hell. You need my help. I suggest you ask nicely, Captain. So yeah, so that's the accent he uses. And it's, I don't know, it's just its just weird. I don't know if like it's a good accent or not. I'm kind of not the best judge of accents. I know so many people who get more outraged than I do about TV actors doing different accents and whatnot. But it is funny to hear to hear John using this voice and what he thinks a peacekeeper captain would sound like and be how the peacekeeper captain would behave. Yeah, and he even uses like these kind of weird British words. Like he calls Aaron lieutenant because that's the British pronounce like the British pronunciation of lieutenant. Maybe we're acting under the assumption that most of the time species don't because they can all understand each other perfectly. Like even mm-hmm. back in Rhapsody in Blue when John is making chicken noises, it translates to the equivalent of whatever <laughs> chicken noises are in Delvian, right? Right. So I guess maybe it's one of those things where, like, if you were really listening, you would maybe hear that somebody is not speaking your language. But if you see someone that looks like a Sebastian and they're speaking like a hoity-toity <laughs> Sebastian, then maybe you're just like, oh, they just just be an asshole. <laughs> right. I, I definitely think we're overanalyzing some of this because... But, well, it's like the whole... Uh, was it with Star Wars like the the cast of the original Star Wars A New Hope while the extras were British and he gave them that extra menace and it's you know they're doing the same thing with the Australian accent in the Farscape universe it just it's it's what conveys that you are the the evil empire Mm -hmm. and so the reason that the reason that John is playing the captain instead of Aaron (laughs) which (laughs) she clearly would have preferred um, is because the uniform didn't fit her so it was a it was a male's uniform and it was way too big for her so she is the lieutenant instead yeah she's a pretty good quote about it that i would like to play let me get this straight rigel has been possessed by some menza member virus that's going to lay eggs it's going to infect all of us in like 
an arm if we don't find him. That's about it. Great. Well, I think under the circumstances, our little masquerade is over. Under the circumstances, those commandos at Prime to shoot at anything they do not trust. The only thing that is over is our chance to take them by surprise. This is a disaster, Crichton. It is a grave misfortune that that uniform did not fit me. So, yeah, Aaron thinks it's a disaster, this whole situation that has unfolded on the ship with them. And she would much rather be the one in charge than the one having to take John's orders. Yeah, and I, don't, I mean, she's not wrong. This was clearly well, a plan. World. Yeah, it's her world. And also, this, is, this was clearly a plan out of desperation mm -hmm. that I think got way out of hand. And I think that everybody else would have preferred that they ended it quickly. And instead, John kept prolonging and prolonging and prolonging it. That is true. And part of it is that the circumstances changed. Like, the original circumstances were, we've got to have the Marauder Commandos on, and they're going to, you know, we're going to have them on the board for 20 arms to get to this base that they want to get to. We need to learn as much as we can about them in the meantime. And there's a conversation early on with John, uh, right after the Commandos come on board with Dargo and Zan, about that very that very plan. So I'm going to play that one really really quickly. All right, enough is enough. The sham is over. I say we storm them now. No, 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 no. This is working. They think I'm a peacekeeper captain. Certainly, the uniform is convincing. Yes, we're glad the peacekeepers left it on board. You look very uh, fetching. John Dago is right. Perhaps we should take them now while we still have the element of surprise. Moya's in the final stages of pregnancy. We have twenty arms before we're anywhere near that base. I say we learn as much from these guys as we can. Aaron's supposed to be grilling LaRock right now. And what is gonna happen when Aaron gets sick and tired of pretending to take your orders? John, the closer we get to that base, the more dangerous it is for all of us. And what if it's not the only base? I may be naive, but flying around in the uncharted territories, ignorant of what the peacekeepers are doing out here, that to me seems dangerous. Well, I can tell you one thing for free. I will not be chained up again. Fine. And I'm not having that door locked. Fine, just... Stay out of sight. And so here, that's exactly what you're saying about the argument of, okay, we need to find out as much information as we can. Well, the others are like, this has already gone on too long. We need to take control back of the ship. They'll be our prisoners. We won't have to worry about them trying to kill us because these are trained commandos. Mm -hmm. But the point where we get to with Aaron and her quote, the circumstances have changed by then. So Rigel being Rigel has snuck out of his cell, and Shiana, who was not ever locked up, she was pretending to be the server, which could mean many things, not just servant, but also, you know, booty call. The well, I think it's actually, okay, let's go back to that for a second, because Shiana wasn't just explicitly like, oh, this is like a servant. She was pretty explicitly his, like, sex slave. Like, yeah. everybody keeps yeah. asking, like, oh, how much did he pay for you? He must have paid a lot for you. You know, and she's like, when she comes in, it's it's super clear that she's supposed to be like his sex slave. And what's hilarious yeah. is there's this kind of moment where the commandos find out about her because she comes in to offer them food and water. And <laughs> one of the commandos is like, oh, I didn't think that uptight guy had, it, you know, like, I didn't think that uptight and then some swear word had it in him, you know, to right, have to this have a non-regulation. Yeah. So she's not locked up either. And so between her and Rigel, they're the ones who actually let loose the virus, this intelligent virus that is now free on the ship when Aaron is talking about being upset that John is the one who's pretending to be captain and not her. So, yeah, let's talk about the virus. Yeah, major plot point. 
the virus is something called an intelligent virus, which apparently means that the virus is intelligent. And it can jump from person to person. It can't reinfect you if it's already infected you. But it's the reason that the this entire ghost unit is out in the Uncharted's, because they're tracking it down. Right. It's the agent of possession that, that drives this episode. And so, so Rigel and Chiana, they're the wild cards in this whole plan. They're like the ones not fully playing by the rules, and it's just the nature of their characters. And I have one, one quote I wanted to play that kind of shows the moment of them coming together to open up the cargo, the mysterious cargo that the peacekeepers have brought on board. What are you doing down here anyway? Me? You're the one who's supposed to stay in his cage. Well, uh, pilot said they were bringing something on board, and I thought I'd come down here and see if I could... You're here for the same reason I am. To see if there's anything inside worth snatching. Snatch? I don't snatch. I procure. Look, in the interest of not getting caught, I'll, uh, I'll agree to half whatever we procure. Half? I was here first. But I have the, uh, the key. Oh, okay, half. So the two of them are all about whatever profit they can steal off of the peacekeepers, because clearly it's valuable if they're really heavily guarding it with with the Marauder crew, and they want it. You know, they want to steal it. They want to see what it is. It's it's a locked box. It turns out to be Pandora's box, releasing this terrible virus upon the ship. But they are the direct cause of this, and I really like that that Farscape is a show that has those kinds of characters in it that mm-hmm. do not follow the rules, that cause chaos, because these guys are essentially the agents of chaos that we see here. Mm-hmm. Because it is, my main question, and which I have like bolded in my notes is, why are they opening this without knowing what it is? <laughs> because it's Rigel and Chiana. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. That's like, that's the answer is, you've set up two characters who, Rigel is just greedy. Rigel wants everything. Rigel will, <laughs> Rigel will steal from you before you're even dead. And you have Chiana, <laughs> yes. who is a character. She's not like she doesn't have the same avarice that Rigel does, but she is a character that's definitely learned the benefit of stealing from other people. Yeah, that's how she's survived. Yeah, she's definitely learned like the benefit of, you know, making copies of keys and the benefit of you know, using her sexuality to get somebody to underestimate her. So I think that, yeah, they they open it because why? <laughs> because if you presented them with a locked box, even if they knew what was inside, even if you told them it's an intelligent virus, don't open it, they probably still would open it. They would definitely still open it. And so they are the, the reason that everything goes completely out of control through this episode and so the virus travels through contact so you actually have to touch the creature that's the host creature and that's what they find inside the box is a host creature that's been put at a really high temperature to keep it unconscious and state and the virus stable inside and they're taking it to the scamic base that we heard mentioned when john and dargo and zan are talking they're taking it to a science research base, which is in the Uncharted territories, that's completely top secret, to develop it into a kind of weapon. You know, at one point, Larock says, We're, I don't care who, what they're going to do with it. Imagine an army basically taken out by an intelligent virus that the peacekeepers control. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty devastating biological warfare. Yeah. Well, and the interesting moment about that is that... Of course, once they realize what's going on with the intelligent virus, and and we should explain. So the 
<laughs> Rigel and Shiana open up the crate. And then just as they open it and they're like, what is this? The commandos come in. Two commandos come in. And one of them is immediately infected and he immediately kills the other one, but not before the other one is like, the virus has escaped. On his communication device. So the commandos are now know that the virus has escaped. Yeah, exactly. So now you have Chiana Rigel in the same room as a commando that's infected with the virus. And Rigel, of course, immediately skedaddles because Rigel knows what's good for him. And Rigel's <laughs> going to watch out for his own back. Screw Chiana. Exactly. <laughs> and so the commando, the virus jumps from the commando to Chiana. And Chiana manages to convince all of them that Rigel has the virus. So now they're hunting Rigel. Yeah, so now everybody is hunting Rigel, and Zan and Dargo, who are at this point the only ones left you know, in their cages, are like, heck with this, we need to get in on this. So they come out, and then there's a brief standoff between the commandos and Zan and Dargo. What, ha- what ends up happening is that the commandos are going to kill them, because they, they do not have time to deal with escaped prisoners. They're like, let's just kill them, get the virus get out of here. Mm -hmm. We don't really care. But obviously John and Aaron don't want that to happen. So John actually does something that he would do as John John, but he does it as Captain John, which is that he talks everybody down from this situation and he makes it look like he's making peace with the prisoners. Right. So then they are all chasing Rigel. Right. And so they pair, they pair off too at that point. Mm -hmm. So one commando with each of the Moya crew because essentially they're still guarding the prisoners. And then John has Chiana with him, because he is technically on the peacekeeper side of things. This is where the episode writing is just really good, because you have the audience knows it's Chiana. The characters think it's Rigel, and they don't know it's Chiana, and she is amongst them, listening to their plan as they figure out how, what they're going to do, where they talk about what strategy they're going to use to take Rigel out, which is this stun gun thing. And all the while, the audience knows that Chiana is the one infected. And so there's this huge buildup of tension that goes all the way through the capture of Rigel. I mean, they get him in the end and they stun him and they put him in the crate because that's how the virus protects itself. It, it plays a shell game of trying to convince the people that are hunting it that it's in, it could be anywhere and trying to have everyone lose track of where, where it's at. Mm-hmm. So after the whole group captures Rigel, that's when the virus jumps. And this time it jumps into John. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it gets even more tense. <laughs> yeah, it definitely gets really tense. This episode, I think the one thing I didn't quite care for this whole episode was that there was kind of some weird, I, I didn't really didn't care for the cinematography this episode because there were a lot of like random fade to blacks when they were trying to jump between characters. Mm-hmm. Because you have during the manhunt for Rigel, there are some really good conversations that happen. You have Lorac and Aaron together. And Aaron at this point actually questions something that I don't know that she would have questioned earlier in the series, which is that she says, you know, Lorac is, Drock says, we're going to dump it at, we're going to dump it at this gamut base where it's peacekeeper science and they're going to study it. And she's like, well, why would you want to study this? Why didn't you just kill it? And he's like, well, the job wasn't to kill it. The job was to find it. And then he explains about maybe having an army of these intelligent viruses. Right. And I think it really is a moment where Aaron kind of is seeing with some horror that peacekeepers aren't always right. Because you can tell that she clearly doesn't think that this is the right thing to do. 
Yeah, she's all for killing it at this point. Yeah, she's all for killing it. And so it is a kind of a moment of her questioning peacekeepers and really interrogating what they're doing in a way that I don't think that she would have done earlier in the series. Right. Back on PK Tech Girl where she's like, you know, peacekeepers do a good thing for the universe and for the societies that they engage with and tells John off for saying, don't have this be this other vision that you want us to be. And here there's that almost a contrast to that viewpoint that she held back in that episode where she can see the danger and the horror that the peacekeepers can inflict on other people. Mm -hmm. And then you also have a couple of other interesting conversations. You have Dargo interacting with a peacekeeper that literally doesn't care about his life. Because (laughs) the peacekeeper is the one that has a weapon. Dargo doesn't have a weapon. But the peacekeeper is forcing Dargo to go into rooms ahead of him. And Dargo's like, you go in first. I don't have a weapon. And the peacekeeper's like, you go in first. You're the prisoner. And I think this is the first time in a very, very long time that Dargo has had an interaction with a sebation that resembles all of his previous interactions with sebations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as the prisoner. Dargo has a really rough episode, I would say, because he's, he's so against being chained up. He is so against the plan of being in disguise because it takes him back to that place where he was at the beginning of the season and for the eight cycles previous where he was a prisoner, he was humiliated, he was chained up physically to his collarbone. Like he has these rings on his collarbone that hold him. It's just, you can tell he's so upset by by this whole situation and he masks it with his anger. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think it also shows how far he's come with John and Aaron that he trusts them to pull off this charade. You know, like he lets them chain him up mm-hmm. and lets them go through with it once it becomes the group decision. So, yeah, so he has he has the peacekeeper who's like, I'm going to point the gun that I have at you. So you go into the room in front of me. Yeah, I think you're right about it being kind of a rough episode for Dargo specifically, because the rest of them are just imprisoned. Dargo's the only one that's actively chained. Yeah, because he's a Luxon, because he's a warrior, he's got that many more security measures on him. Mm-hmm. And they really are degrading. Yeah, I think degrading is a good word for it. I think that if this was a novel or fanfic or something like that, there would have been a lot more time spent on the kind of interior of Dargo because it must be giving him flashbacks. There's mm-hmm. no way that seeing all this red and black uniform... And all these people treating him, even his friends, yeah, treating him poorly. There's no way that's not giving him flashbacks. Yeah, especially since he had such a rough time and such a personally rough time, given that it was his brother-in-law who, who was a peacekeeper who caused his life to, to spiral out of control and be arrested in the first place. Yeah. So the other interesting conversation that happens during the manhunt is Zan kind of does her typical Zan thing and she reaches out and she's trying to tell a story to the peacekeeper and the peacekeeper literally doesn't care. It's so (laughs) interesting. And Zan even has this line of like, sorry for boring you because the peacekeeper, she just gives Zan this, this blank look of why are you even talking to me? Yeah, it is this moment because we've talked about the way that Zan deals with people, which is that she genuinely cares. Like nobody's, nobody's saying she doesn't genuinely care, but she also does tend to use her empathy and her kindness to kind of break down barriers and to kind of expose other people's, not weaknesses, but expose their underbelly, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's trying to find a common ground, a source of empathy, which predisposes the other person to not be as unkind toward her. 
you know, you make that connection with somebody, they're a lot less likely to hurt you. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, she's just, that's her personality type. And even though she's gone through this dark period, I think we're, we're really starting to see Zan level out from all the turmoil that she went through in the middle episodes of the season, mm-hmm. where she's really getting back to Zan, the, the kind priest-like person that she that she became in prison. Yeah, so definitely in Through the Looking Glass, when she puts back on the robes, and she kind of came to that realization that even though she was going around pretending that she wasn't in the Sikh anymore, that she wasn't a Pau anymore, that the reality was that she, that it was still in her. Yeah, deep down it was, was still very much a part of her. Mm-hmm. So they capture Rigel, and it's this poor moment where, like, Rigel is cowering in the wall, and he's oh, screaming. Oh, Rigel. Yeah. I know. And they just, they shoot him, and then they put him in the crate, the crate of death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so then, at that point, the virus that's in Chiana switches to John, because it needs to move. It doesn't want to incubate which and reproduce yet. It wants to wait until it has a bigger population, which is the gamut base. So it moves into John. And so now the audience knows it's in John. The characters think it's in Rigel and Contained. Well, actually, the characters don't all think that it's in John because Zan, and this goes back to Zan being the one that that notices more. She just notices more things. Zan notices that after they capture Rigel, Chiana is kind of stumbling around a little bit and kind of looking around confused. And Mm -hmm. she kind of looks at Chiana and she's like, that's a little weird. But she doesn't say anything because she's learned from the science officer that the virus leaves a mild hallucinogenic behind, so the person that it infected doesn't remember being infected. And then she also notices that John is behaving a little bit weird. I want to play a clip from when John has been infected and he's trying to convince Zan and Dargo that everything is fine and that they're just going to continue their plan. Even though at this point it's, it's spiraled more than out of control. Our only chance is to talk to the peacekeeper science officer. What's her name? The one with the nice lips. Hassan. If anybody knows about an antibody, it will be her. And Dargo, forget about the use of force. You think you can make Hassan tell you about the antibody? Name me the peacekeeper you've met who'd give a royal grin if you stuck a charged pulse rifle to their head. But John, we are on a direct course for the peacekeeper base. I would rather not be locked in a cell when we arrive. And I say... We need to find out about the base. We have the time, let's use it. Let's not blow it by going around the ship waving guns about. The antibody is top priority. Look, as soon as I leave here, I'm going straight to Hot Lips. Trust me. Yeah, so you have John very much saying what John would say and that like we don't want to deal with guns we need to talk to to the scientists and figure out a scientific solution with this antibody thing and then you have this incongruous reference to her hot lips it's definitely not something he would normally talk about well and also even as he's saying it he's like fingering his lips and he kind of looks like he's imagining it which I think is what sets Zan off because She knows John pretty well at this point, and she knows that he hasn't yet referred to a woman by her body parts. Mm -hmm. So Zan just gets a little bit suspicious, and she is the one actually that figures out that the virus had been in Chiana because she has litmus fibers in her blanket, which is... (laughs) 
hilarious. Yeah, Thank you that, first that's game. like pulled out of air. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we need some way to test for acid. Oh, we'll just put it in the blanket. <laughs> and I love that they name it like litmus fibers. Well, yeah. Which, okay, if you don't know, so actually maybe you should explain what a litmus test is because you're better oh, at science it's than just I. a way of... Oh. <laughs> Thanks. It's just a way of testing whether something is acidic or basic. And litmus paper, what we have in reality, is chemically treated. And if it's acidic, it turns red. And if it's uh, if it's basic, it turns blue along a color scale. And so that's basically what the same principle they're using with the blanket is because it has these litmus fibers in it. Chiana licks it, and Zan knows then that Chiana was possessed because she had an acidic aftertaste, as it were from the possession of the virus. So then Zan and Dargo rush up to command where John has speeded their journey towards the gamic base because the virus wants to get to the gamic base before it spawns. And it is an interesting moment because this is when everything kind of comes to a head. But because of how tense it is, nobody really even has the time to ask, hey, why are your prisoners out? Why is everybody (laughs) referring to you as... John. John. Yeah. And oh my God. I love that scene so much. And this is where the cinematography really works for me. Mm-hmm. After Zan makes her accusation that it's in John, the John as the virus knocks into one of the other people and there's this whole scuffle and like five different people touch him. So now they don't know who has the virus. And what the cinematography does, it goes kind of, the camera moves around kind of the circle that they've made and the characters keep moving. Like, like there's like five of them with guns and they keep moving to, to aim them at each other. And I'm just going to step back really quickly before we move on because the whole reason that they know that the virus is loose and not in Rigel anymore and why Zan's con- suspicions about it being in John and formerly in Chiana are true is because the Lieutenant Hassan, the peacekeeper, John does go find her as the virus and he kills her. He like bangs her head with a wrench and the body is found. And that's where they really know that, okay, they were wrong about Rigel. And that's where this, this, whole, this whole scene comes to a head after that moment. And so they're all aiming with guns at each other. And it's this very spinny shell game kind of feeling of, okay, who is now infected? And they only know that John and Chiana, since they've already been possessed, they won't be possessed again. And that's like the only information that they have. What you're saying about the uh, the whole confusion of now that the ruse is broken down. <laughs> I think Zan <laughs> says it once and John says it once. It's like off topic. <laughs> we have yes. To get back on topic. <laughs> it's just really funny. And then they don't really deal with, you know, they just let it go and they don't they don't dwell on it, which is kind of great. Yeah, well, because at this point, the only two peacekeepers that are still alive are Lorac and one of his underlings. And so that is this kind of moment of even those two realize that at this point, the virus has killed seven mm-hmm. of their people Six. because it killed, well, no, because it killed three before they got on board, one when they got on board. Yeah, no, I think it's one less than that because... Because I think in that count, during that conversation with Aaron, he was including the guy who got killed on board. Yeah, and so he said, she said it killed three of your people, and he was like, four. Four. So it's one more. Okay. Yeah, so it's... I can't keep count. If anyway, someone can figure it out. Yeah, so somebody else <laughs> can figure it out. Let us know if you know exactly how many of the Peacekeeper Commandos <laughs> the virus killed. At least, probably six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. Six or seven. <laughs> can't do math. <laughs> 
So anyway, so the virus has killed like a lot of them. And so I think even Lorac and his, you know, his officer have figured out that they need to move on, that the bigger issue yeah. is the virus. Plus they're outnumbered. Yeah. At this point, they're very outnumbered. So Zam ends up creating... An alkali- it's an alkaline solution to, to increase the, the baseness, I guess, of their body chemistry mm-hmm. and it boosts their immune systems so that they're... It wouldn't kill the virus, but it would cause a strong reaction. I'm not sure how this would use with the very specific pH requirements of the human body. <laughs> right, <laughs> I love Let's just go with it. Science is not Farscape's strong suit. Zan created a magic solution that magically <laughs> wouldn't kill everybody, or like at least one or two of them. <laughs> Right. Oh, man. Which actually is some, a question that, like, some of them have, because they're like, well, what if Zan is infected? And yeah. so Zan, like, injects herself first. But again, like, it, just, it is yeah. kind of like one of those things of, like, a very easy way <laughs> of kind of doing the... this. You know what this feels like? This feels like those old movies where they used to play Russian roulette or something like mm. that, you know, or, like, yeah. where it had two people sitting in between each other and... They just kept, you know, empty click, empty click, empty click until the tension was so high that yeah. you know the gun has to go off. Yeah, because, you know, each successive person that is injected with Zan's magic serum is cleared. And then finally it's down to Dargo and Larock. And uh, there's this really, <laughs> John does the eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and then picks Dargo, who passes a test. So that means the virus is in Larock as the last person standing. And then he reacts. He doesn't react to the serum because they can't get it into him, but he you know, runs away and shoots and all those good villain things that a good intelligent virus does to get away. Yeah. While they're waiting for Zan to make, to make the potion, let's call it that. <laughs> the magic uh, potion. The magic potion. Cause it's whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so then there's this moment where John is looking down at the dead science officer. Cause they haven't even removed her body at this point. Yeah. She's, she's where she fell. It's kind of disturbing. And so he's looking down at it, and I want to play the quote, what Chiana says to him, and then I want to discuss John and killing. Hey, lighten up, you didn't do it. Well, you did, but it wasn't really you. It wasn't you, but it wasn't, it wasn't at the same time. And I think this is the first person that John kills on this show. Mm. Is that right? It's like, yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking about it. And this is the first person that at least his body has physically killed with its own two hands because Durka pretty much either dead or left for dead. Same for the alien in, in back and back and back to the future. Um, Matala. Yeah. Matala. Cause he lets her go, but he lets her go with the understanding that it's unstable and she's going to die. Right. So Inaction as opposed to action with those two cases. But here, this is a very brutal personal murder that he can't remember because he was possessed at the time and he has memory loss from that. Yet he is staring at the result of what his hands did, lying in a puddle of her own blood on the floor. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he's torn up about it because he's very quiet. He keeps looking at her and Shiana notices. And that's when she says, it wasn't really you who did that. It was the virus. Yeah. And it's, it is kind of like a killer thing for, for, jo- for John because this is, we've discussed his aversion to using guns. This entire plot of, you know, pretending to be peacekeepers was created because John does not like killing people. Yeah. You know? It's all about, let's use a ruse to, to get, take care of this. We're not going to surprise them and take them over and potentially kill them. We're just going to keep playing along. And yet here he is really confronted with, 
with the brutality of what he is capable of, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, I think it is what he's capable of. Yeah. yeah. Because this also kind of ties back to Talvo's death. Because Talvo was someone that John killed accidentally. But the science officer is somebody that his body, at least, very physically, very consciously, very on purpose killed. And I think you're right that it does kind of reflect what he is capable of. Mm -hmm. And I'd also say getting into Lorac's death, which, spoilers, that happens in this episode (laughs) in like two minutes after this point. So Lorac escapes, Lorac as the virus. He runs off, they're searching for him, Pilot shuts down all the tears so he can't get off the tier level, and he grabs hold of Aaron by surprise and tries to take her hostage in order to get away, which works in that he ends up stabbing her in the side, pushing her at John and Dargo so they have to take care of her and then running off to to his ship to get away. And Dargo stays with Aaron and John runs after him because John can't be reinfected and that's what Dargo tells him to do, so he does it. And this is this is the second death of the episode that John is involved with, and he ends up getting to the Marauder too late to stop him. He says, Pilot, let it go, and then goes back to command and sets up a way to kill the virus and the rock with Starburst. And it's it's like, you know, the the action movie thing that is actually isn't possible in real life where you set fire to a trailing line of gasoline and it causes the car to explode is exactly the same idea. He uses Moya initiating Starburst to ignite the cesium fuel trail, which is the whole reason that they came aboard in the first place they were leaking fuel and it causes the the flame goes up and blows up the marauder. And so John is again, this time deliberately and in his own mind, responsible for the virus's death and also the rock's death as collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And I think that on top of having his body just kill Lieutenant Hassan, I think that messes him up because he's really upset in the last the last scene that we have with him. I think he's really feeling the power of his own capability of killing people mm-hmm. or at least that's part of it yeah I, I would agree with that I would I would definitely agree that it, it messes him up a lot but I also think that it's it's almost two different things because Lieutenant Hassan was killed in cold blood unexpectedly mm-hmm. whereas what I read it as was that as soon as Lorac stabs Aaron and he doesn't even know it's a very large knife essentially it's a very large like almost Bowie knife you know yeah. And there's this moment that I think John just goes cold. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's That was the acting. Like, you know, props to Ben Browder because his face just goes like Arctic. Yeah. And then he comes up with this very, very cold-blooded plan of we're going to blow him up. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's hard not to read that as partially being you do not mess with Aaron. Yeah. And I, I agree with that, too. And I also think there's two parts of killing somebody. There's the moment it happens and the state of mind you're in. And then because he is in touch with his emotions and there's the reaction to it afterward, which is a separate thing. And mm-hmm. that's the reaction part is really where where everything hits him is like, oh, my God, I am actually this person who can do this. And looking back on past self that just murdered somebody or killed somebody does he like this person that he's seeing that he knows he can be? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so like, yes, definitely that do not mess with Aaron and that I'm going to defend this crew, but combined with not knowing he was capable of that kind of anger and or murder. (laughs) Yeah, because it also does go back to kind of how he defines himself 
And he definitely defines himself as not a killer. His right. whole issue with Crace is that Crace is like, you're a murderer. And John is like, I am not a murderer. Like, not a murderer is essentially what John should have on a t-shirt as, like, <laughs> who he is. You know what I mean? John Crichton, I am not a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. So I think him choosing to kill Lorac, it, it really does kind of change who he is now. Yeah, and that's something he's grappling with at the end of the episode with Aaron, and also what he continues to grapple with throughout the rest of the series. Yes, yeah, so... We keep tiptoeing around the John Aaron quote, so let's actually <laughs> just play it. Welcome back. Now for a while there, Zan wasn't too sure you were going to make it. What's happened to the virus? It's dead. <sighs> so is Lorac. They stabbed me, didn't they? Yeah. You got lucky he missed your heart. Closer than you think. So, um, Peacekeeper Base. We're getting as far away from it as we can. It's still out there. We don't know why. What are you doing in here, anyway? Oh, I just wanted to, um, um, be there. Thank you. I'll mention it. Why would I ever mention it? <laughs> Aaron. Aaron, yes. There's like three different things going on in this quote. And I think part of his unarticulation at the end is just, I think it's one part being upset about what has happened to him and another large part being upset about what has happened to Aaron. Because this is really the first time that Aaron has been vitally injured since DNA Mad Scientist. Yeah. And in that one, it was a lot less visceral almost because it was more of a sciencey thing and less of a violence thing. Mm -hmm. And also he wasn't there, there for it. He only saw the aftermath. And here he witnessed her being stabbed and helped catch her when she fell to the ground. Mm -hmm. and, I don't know. Yeah. John is really kind of broken up at the end. And that that whole thing about like, don't mention it. I think on the one hand, he is kind of, it is just like something you say when you do something for somebody. Oh, don't mention it. But at the same time, almost the way he's saying it is like, don't mention it. Because I would prefer that none of this had ever happened. Kind of feeling to it, you know? Yeah. And I think it also says a lot about Aaron's growth in that she can understand what he's not saying. Because it's a very an emotion. he's in a very emotional place right here where, you know, he's worried about her. He's worried about what happened to him. This has been a horrible situation. He feels rotten about it all. And she gets that subtext that I don't think she would have picked up on early in the season. Mm -hmm. Somebody mentioned that, that we talk a lot about, like, baby Aaron. And not, like, obviously Aaron as a child, but, like, Aaron <laughs> early in season one, where we see so much character growth for her over such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Because, to be honest... In 18 episodes, most characters on a lot of TV shows nowadays don't change at all. Like, if yeah. you, like you know, and especially a lot of science fiction shows where the characters yeah. essentially remain in stasis for up to like 12 seasons of TV. Stargate, <laughs> I am looking at you. <laughs> they might have a feeling during the season finale. Yeah, right. <laughs> um but then we also don't talk a lot about like baby John because like yeah. season one 
John goes from being like first contact Star Trek nerd and he grows a lot and he grows really fast. Essentially, he grows from being a Star Trek character to being like a new Battlestar Galactica character, you know? Yeah, it's a rough transition for him, too. And you see him resisting it the whole way with his like insistence on trying for the peaceful solution and trying to talk his way out and in all those sorts of situations that he he tries to resolve by talking as opposed to fighting. You know, he carries a gun in this episode. Like, he carries the pulse rifle with him when they're hunting down Rigel and with intent to use it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's also another change in his bearing. I don't think he wanted to use it, but, you know, he took it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And also, I mean, I think that even John had to realize that leaving an intelligent virus alive is the same as, you know, leaving somebody out there with black hole weaponry technology, mm-hmm. where it's just yeah. not a good plan. Yeah, and I think the death of Larocque and the virus, because you can frame it as killing the virus, and it's really sad that Larocque died too, you know, it's still not a hardcore, cold-blooded murder like the killing of Lieutenant Hassan was, because it's a justifiable for the greater good kind of killing, mm-hmm. whereas Hassan's murder that he car- his body carried out while under the influence of the virus was just a straight-up murder for very selfish reasons on the part of the virus. Yeah. And that's another way those two deaths differ. Yeah, for certain. So we also have a moment at the end of the episode with Dargo and Rigel and Zan, and I really liked that it was the three of them. Because mm-hmm. even though the crew has grown now, and now we have Chiana, the three of them really have a fundamental bonding experience that nobody else on the crew will ever have. And that is being prisoners together under the peacekeepers and being prisoners on the same vessel together. And so they kind of have this moment where Dargo is, is holding the chains that they were using. And he essentially says, you know, I will never be chained again. Let's play it. I think it's worth playing. I see you have removed the chains from your cell. And I will take great pleasure in destroying them. If there's one thing I've learned from this fiasco, it's that I will never be chained up again. I pray that will be the case. You can pray all you like. I was expressing a fact, not a hope. I understand your pain, Dargo. It must have been a difficult deception to carry out. Difficult! Difficult! Any deception where I end up boxed on slow bake like some Hungarian table spud is an outright failure! Of course, I knew from the start that Crichton had never pull it off. Oh, really? Yet you let him lock you in your cell while an unknown amount of peacekeepers were allowed on board. Very interesting. Perhaps next time we will follow a plan of your devising. Yes, perhaps we will. Next time. I pray there will never be a next time. I really like in that clip Dargo being like removing any possibility of the situation recurring because it was so upsetting for him and we mentioned this already to be chained up again and he is going to make sure those chains are melted down and thrown out of the ship right now. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing telling about this quote is when Zan says, you know, next time, if this situation comes up again, what are we going to do? We're going to do it differently. We're going to do something follow Rigel's plan even though Rigel's participation in this in this one didn't go very well at all either but the acknowledgement that there's going to be a next time that this isn't over their their lives with the peacekeepers and their lives running from the peacekeepers isn't over yet yeah it is a moment that's even though Rigel has essentially the only funny lines in this entire episode this was not a comedy episode at all (laughs) 
No. But so (laughs) those are essentially the two funny lines. Well, that and when he and Shiana are talking about snurching, which is awesome. I love that new (laughs) word. Let's use it forever. (laughs) But so there is kind of this moment where Dargo's catharsis is really explicitly played out of of him saying, this is not like a, an, a what if I am telling you that I will never be captured again. And there, and whenever someone says something like that, I'm never going to be captured again. Kind of the, the flip side of that is that they would prefer to die than be captured again. And I think that's definitely what you're hearing from Dargo is that he understands that, that that is the flip side and that he would prefer death to, to being in the situation again of being chained. Yeah, that's definitely what I hear in that, too. Like, I think that quote is pretty self-explanatory just because of how, because of the emotional weight that each of the characters has at this point invested into into their mm-hmm. past and into what's happened. You know, they've been through this horrific experience of having to relive the worst moments of their lives. Mm-hmm. On top of having an enemy that could possess their body, and they have to work together with the peacekeepers, which is another thing that... We know that Dargo in particular, his sole exception to that rule is now Aaron. Like, his sole exception. He still does not like them. Yeah. And he still doesn't even, I I don't even think he really thinks of Aaron as a peacekeeper anymore because she's not. Right. They have both gone beyond that that distinction. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that if now we rate all Dargo's plans against his plan to cut off his own pinky finger, I think (laughs) from here on out... We're going to have to rate all of John's plans against his plan to let a full crew of Marauder on board. <laughs> like a fully, a fully crewed Marauder on board. This is, this is true. On the other hand, if they had just left the crate alone, would it have been a bad plan? Yes, because they still, I mean, like, because they were still headed towards a gamut base. Do you know what I mean? And plus, what was their end game here? So then they capture the marauders, (laughs) right? But then they have like five marauders on board. And what are they going to do? Just let them go at some point? No. They're going to have to kill them, you know? Yeah. Something like that. Oh, John. And that everyone else went with his plan means that no one had any other better ideas. Yeah. Well, probably because they were concerned that if they ran away, the marauder would be suspicious enough to chase them. Either chase them or report their position or something or some other way of drawing position. So in their defense, they were in a tight spot with it. Yeah, they were in a tight spot. So since the death of the white shirt, forever sad, long live the king. (laughs) (laughs) I did not like the white shirt. (laughs) Uh, You didn't? I didn't mind it. I don't think anybody really looks good in a white in like a white Hanes t-shirt, you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, especially not even a v-neck. It was just a regular Hanes t-shirt. Oh, I love you, John. Anyway, <laughs> so since the death of the white shirt, we decided that we're going to rename John Crichton White Shirt Watch. We're going to rename it Wardrobe Watch because we will eventually be talking about wardrobe changes. So in Wardrobe Watch, John Crichton is dressed this entire episode in Peacekeeper Captain clothing, which is... I don't know. They... Black and bright red. Yeah, cherry black and red as red. opposed to the maroon that the commandos wear. Which I think it's supposed to explicitly be like, it would essentially be like letting your uniform fade to that point. Like, I don't think it's like they have a different color. I think it's just that, like, it's supposed to be like they don't keep their uniforms in very good condition because they don't care about that uh, sort of thing. I don't know. I would actually say they're different colors to, to denote different jobs. You think so? Yeah, that's just my read on it. Okay, so, and Aaron is also dressed in bright 
Peacekeeper red. Looks pretty good on her. I like it. Yeah, and black. Everybody else is wearing their normal outfits. Yeah, and then the commandos are in the, the Peacekeeper black and maroon uniforms. Mm-hmm. I am kind of bummed that, like, they didn't do eye makeup on these commandos, but maybe it's just because <laughs> they've been, like, maybe it's because they're not going on a raid. Yeah, or maybe it's just each commando crew does their own different little thing, and maybe this crew hell has tattoos or something. Ooh, that would be so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you rate this episode? I would give this one uh, a four, four and a half. I think it's a really good episode. I really like the tension it brings. I really like how well it's plotted and the pacing of it. I also, I just love watching John and Aaron dress up and pretend to be peacekeepers. <laughs> yeah. I just love that. You know, that's one of my favorite things that happens in TV is when, when people get to play dress up to, to try and pull a fast one over on people. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would definitely give it like a four or four and a half only because of what's coming up. <laughs> Our scale is so messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Like I said, I think we just like it and essentially we're just going to downrate anything that we like really dislike. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. This was like, if I hadn't already watched Nerve, I would be like, yeah, this is like four and a half, maybe even a five. But now mm -hmm. I'm like, nah, you know, not with what's coming, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what's up next week is Nerve. It's part one of a two-parter and it gets exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. So if you like us, it would be great if you could rate us on iTunes because that's how other people find us. We are also open for questions, comments, anything. Um, we have a Tumblr account at farscapefridaypodcast.tumblr.com. We also have a website, um, farscapefridaypodcast.simplecast.fm. We have a Dream With account, Farscape Friday podcast.dreamwith.com. And we also have an email address, which is Farscape Friday podcast at gmail.com. Surprise! We're the same thing everywhere. <laughs> um, we'll see you next week with Nerve. Bye bye.